All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 337. Uh, we're going to tackle transhumanism. It's quite a thing. As we get into it, a human mind could simply ask, where's the logic? Where's the respect for nature? We'll get into these things. And Jason did the notes from this, pulled from, welcome, Jason. Who did a lot of this get pulled from? I always forget the guy's name. Some of it came from Ray Kurzweil, but it's actually a collection of a lot of the transhumanist work that is out there. Yeah, valuable work, right? Um, Anyhow, I guess we'll just jump right in unless you got anything. Now let's do it. All right. The mainstream definition for transhumanism calls it a philosophical movement, the proponents of which advocate and predict the enhancement of the human condition by developing and making widely available sophisticated technologies able to greatly enhance longevity, mood, and cognitive abilities. Transhumanist thinkers study the potential benefits and dangers of emerging technologies that could overcome fundamental human limitations, as well as the ethics of using such technologies. Some transhumanists believe that human beings may eventually be able to transform themselves into beings with abilities so greatly expanded from the current condition as to merit the label of post-human beings. Another topic of transhumanist research is how to protect humanity against existential risks, such as nuclear war or asteroid collision. (laughs) So we need to protect ourselves from two things that do not exist as described as you end there. But the idea of post-human beings, I mean, if, if I want to be spiritual about what I'm about to say, isn't that the idea that every spiritual tradition is written about, calling it heaven or nirvana? Isn't that actual nature's version of post-human beings? But The thing about enhancing longevity, mood, and cognitive abilities implies that somehow a dead machine takes over the functions of what a human body was already made to do. But here's the kicker. Corporation never knows how to find that spot where they're doing it as good as they can and just stop. At no time does a corporation stop. We've got to assume corporations would be pushing these ideas, and they always got to go too far. I mean, what do you think? Am I right or am I wrong? I don't see how corporations wouldn't be behind this because it's the major tech companies, even when governments are doing things that are developing technology because governments don't make anything. They outsource everything. You know, I spent a lot of years at the end of my career working for other people uh, in corporate world. And never once did I ever experience in a corporation that where they'd hit the sweet spot and they said, we're doing it right. Just like this. Let's keep doing it. Every single corporation I worked for without fail was we got to get bigger. How can we change? How can we keep modifying and keep going? And every time they're risking losing the success they currently have at a sort of equilibrium of success, and they they just never stop. It's always further, further, further. And in some ways, that feels like it reflects how we got to where we are in 2020, right? Uh, Just the constant push to keep what's next, what's next. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Corporations are never satisfied because they're predominantly uh, focused on profit, aren't they? Right. It uh, beggars the imagination because even at the the base of the idea of corporation is by law in some situations, if you're a board member, uh, the idea is that you have to try to make more money every year. So the idea of equilibrium is built out of it from a legal standpoint. The Transhumanist Declaration was originally crafted in 1998 by an international group of authors, Doug Bailey, Anders Sandberg, Gustavo Alves, Max Moore, Holger Wagner, Natasha Weidemore, 
Eugene Lytle, Bernie Staring, David Pierce, Bill Fantagrossi, Dan Otter, Ralph Fletcher, Tom Morrow, Alexander Shislenko, Lee Daniel Crocker, Darren Reynolds, Keith Ellis, Tom Quinn, Mikhail Sverdlov, Arjun Kampfwis, Shane Spaulding, and Nick Bostrom. This transhumanist declaration has been modified over the years by several authors and organizations. It was adopted by the Humanity Plus Board in March of 2009. One, humanity stands to be profoundly affected by science and technology in the future. We envision the possibility of broadening human potential by overcoming aging, cognitive shortcomings, involuntary suffering, and our confinement to planet Earth. Two, we believe that humanity's potential is still mostly unrealized. There are possible scenarios that lead to wonderful and exceedingly worthwhile enhanced human conditions. Three, we recognize that humanity faces serious risks, especially from the misuse of new technologies. There are possible realistic scenarios that lead to the loss of most or even all of what we hold valuable. Some of these scenarios are drastic, others are subtle. Although all progress is change, not all change is progress. Four, research effort needs to be invested into understanding these prospects. We need to carefully deliberate how best to reduce risks and expedite beneficial applications. We also need forums where people can constructively discuss what should be done and a social order where responsible decisions can be implemented. Five, reduction of existential risks and development of means for the preservation of life and health, the alleviation of grave suffering, and the improvement of human foresight and wisdom should be pursued as urgent priorities and heavily funded. Six, policymaking ought to be guided by responsible and inclusive moral vision, taking seriously both opportunities and risks, respecting autonomy and individual rights, and showing solidarity with and concern for the interests and dignity of all people around the globe. We must also consider our moral responsibilities towards generations that will exist in the future. Seven, we advocate the well-being of all sentience, including humans, non-human animals, and any future artificial intellects, modified life forms, or other intelligences to which technological and scientific advance may give rise. Eight, we favor allowing individuals wide personal choice over how they enable their lives. This includes use of techniques that may be developed to assist memory, concentration, and mental energy, life extension therapies, reproductive choice technologies, cryonics procedures, and many other possible human modification and enhancement technologies. So call me a realist, Jason, but I'm going to go through here and show that the foundation of what they're claiming they're for doesn't exist in the first place. But way back near the beginning, uh, they said they wanted to end our confinement to planet Earth. Aren't they admitting that we've never left here? Isn't that an open admission? What do you think? Sounds a little like it. Uh, there's a whole lot of socialism slash 
Yeah, almost communism-ish kind of stuff in there. It's it's definitely a different school of thought than free market, traditional United States values. Well, then it goes on to talk about all these things they're for and how it needs to be responsibly implemented and human rights need to come into it. And I'll ask everyone listening in any part of the world, uh, is your government in your eyes acting responsibly right now? And by the way, do you feel like human rights are high on the list of important things when you look around? I mean, here it is. Responsible decisions need implemented. That's from four. Policymaking ought to be guided by responsible, inclusive, moral vision. Do you feel like your government's are overly moral right now. They go on to talk about individual rights. Now, we've all lived through 2020, and I would say the the biggest loss of what happened in 2020 was human rights and individual rights. Then they go on to claim that interests and dignity of all people around the globe is important, and yet we've just witnessed the exact opposite of that. But it really comes to a crescendo when they claim They advocate for the well-being of sentience, or basically things that think, including humans and non-human animals. Well, first of all, what the hell is a non-human animal? If I'm not mistaken, animals live and breathe. So this is all of it, a non-logical bridge too far for me. I mean, what do you think? Am Am I hitting the mark just using the points? It's definitely a different approach to thinking, that's for sure. I can tell you that as far as the past year plus is concerned, I have seen things that the uh, more outspoken transhumanists have said about how they're not happy with the way that things have gotten pushed back because the one thing that I hear a lot of transhumanists really be on about a lot is life extension. And obviously everyone is getting older. So if that technology isn't being worked on to a fair degree for them to extend their lives to get into this future that they think is coming, they're not happy. Well, I would also point out that if dead mechanisms, basically, right? A machine is a dead mechanism. Uh, It has no life. It has no consciousness. Even if you want to act like AI does, it's not. It's not the same. It's trying to take over all those things that... Use this as an example. So you have a human being that's not real good at math, let's say, and they get some system combined with their body, and all of a sudden they can do trigonometry. But in a way, what you've done is removed the cognitive ability of the human being altogether because it's a bit like using a calculator, right? If I can't add two and two and I use a calculator, if I can memorize what the calculator told me, then maybe I've learned something. But the point is, it's not that hard to, to learn two and two. And my point being is a human is situated to be able to learn and advance. And I can remember in my life, time. I think it was around seventh grade when those Texas Instruments calculators became a real problem for math teachers and they considered it cheating and you could be booted right out of class if you got caught with a uh, basically a mechanism that helped you add and subtract. The thinking that recently ago when I was in school and junior high was that you're being lazy as a human being because you're not learning anything and this tool is doing all the work for you. So I would ask simply, what is the difference in any of the things we've read thus far in transhumanism? Isn't it all just transplanting what's already innately an innate ability of a human being in the first place? There is also one other point we should uh, make here, and that's that many transhumanists are atheists. Well, there's, there's a salient point, Jason. 
from my point of view, you know, when I was coming up and I had to go to church, I really questioned it. Uh, I'm hearing the same stories here other, every time. What's the value? Yes, I've, I've heard that parable. Um, and as I got older, I began to realize one of the key aspects of being a human being is that spiritual reach we all need to make, however you choose to do that. And I'm with you all day long. What we find in these people is the idea of godlessness, of spiritualness. Um, all these kinds of things. And I think after the years that we've just come through, many, many, many minds that I have bumped into have reverted back to becoming very spiritual, uh, realizing the importance. So you may have just made the most important point we can make in this entire episode. Starting with 1906, the first stop on the train ride to transhumanism is with Nikolai Fyodorov, who establishes Russian Cosmism. This is a spiritual belief system that is a precursor to transhumanism, which advocates for physical immortality, space exploration, and resurrecting the dead through science. Cosmism entailed a broad theory of natural philosophy, combining elements of religion and ethics with a history and philosophy of the origin, evolution, and future existence of the cosmos and humankind. It combines elements from both Eastern and Western philosophic traditions, as well as from the Russian Orthodox Church. I don't suppose we know if this man was an atheist, but it seems to me what we're looking at here uh, kind of goes in the face of, I guess, millennia of spiritual exploration by what we call human beings. So it's a created spiritual system that is completely artificial, that advocates transhumanism for the simple reason of physical immortality, space exploration, and there we are again, uh, in an offhand way, admitting that we don't leave this place. And here's the kicker, resurrecting the dead through science. Now, here we are at the foundation of everything that is the problem with the modern age, in my view, and that's that it's a death-based system. I always use the simple example, so people can think about it, of the corpse oration or the talking corpse. Um, this is a entity without life that's been created, so the living have no responsibility, and then it does stuff. Uh, free from repercussion of what it does. Uh, we could look at all the examples online right now where they're basically doing whatever they feel like. You can talk about that. You can't talk about that. And yet there is no individual responsible for the actions that people are no longer very happy about. My main point here is, is if we go all the way back to the beginning of where Jason started, you could find it was authors that kicked out our eight-point push for transhumanism. And as we have shown so often, the role of science fiction in modern life has been a death-based system, which has pushed one simple idea. These things that are unbelievable are going to come to you in a story written by a science fiction writer. Over time, you're going to get used to the idea that used to be unacceptable because we're just we're just playing around here. We're telling a fictitious story. As time progresses, you become less shocked by the things that are put in front of you so regularly. Then pretty soon they're put into movies and film and you begin to visualize them. And after however many years, they become run of the mill parts of our existence. And then lo and behold, someone like NASA says, guess what? We just did this thing that everyone thought was science fiction. Uh, but at the base of it, which we have pointed out, if you go back to the first science fiction, often credited the first, it has to exactly to do with the death idea. It is Frankenstein taking that dead, lifeless matter and reanimating it, which is one of the open expressions they're aiming for. 
in this new supposed spiritual belief system called transhumanism. Did I drop anything through the cracks there? No, I think the one thing we can point out is that we can see the steps towards the transhumanism concepts. But this one here at the beginning still has some spiritual ideas mixed in with it, which will definitely be getting discarded as we go along. You know, I would, they're gonna, you know, you said at the end of this, they're grabbing from the Russian Orthodox Church and either uh, Western or Eastern philosophic traditions. And you see this all the time because they know that certain things work uh, from a human perspective. People are already used to these ideas. So they try to mash them into this thing that really is unacceptable. But, you know, when I was young, Jason, and I wanted to read comic books, all the adults would say, that's trash. You're rotting your mind. Why are you doing this? I could never understand why they held that position. And now looking backwards with much better vision as an adult, I get it because they could think and they saw that it was completely valueless. And yet you and I have lived through an age where the Academy Awards would not even give awards out to sci-fi. Now it's front and center and top of the pops. So look where we've come. Oh, we need as much distraction as possible, don't we? That's where we're headed. Ready Player One is indeed another type of template that looks to usher us towards what we're talking about here. In 1924, British scientist and Marxist J.B.S. Haldane publishes Daedalus or Science and the Future, which offers an early vision of transhumanist thought particularly concerned with the ethical implications of the advancement of science. The book was the text of a lecture read to the Heretics Society, which was an intellectual club at the University of Cambridge, on February 4th, 1923. Haldane used the Greek myth of Daedalus as a symbol for the revolutionary nature of science with particular regard to his own discipline of biology. So there it is. There's the tie back to the Greek myths. And as we know, uh, you and I showed how CNN basically used the myth of truth down the well to kick into 24-7 and have been thriving ever since. These are archetypes. And it's interesting to me that he uses the Daedalus-Icarus myth. I'm assuming that's the one that is used here because they're stating Daedalus. And I always get it backwards because I'm not quite as smart as I wish I was. And I have to go back and read these things. I always try to remember Daedalus as the person who used the wax one and flew to the sun. But if I'm not mistaken, and I might be because I did not read this before I came on the air, Daedalus is the father who warns his son Icarus not to get too careless. And it is, I think, Icarus who flies too close to the sun with his wax wings and he is killed. But certainly anyone who wants to go in and take a good dig could simply go back and read the myth of Daedalus and Icarus. And By the way, I'm really wishing I was much better read than I am because I'm not aware if there is a different Daedalus myth, which there must be. So I hope I just didn't miss the mark badly there. In 1929, British scientist John Desmond Bernal publishes The World, The Flesh, and The Devil. The book introduced ideas that would be central to transhumanism, including livable space habitats, and the future changes science could bring to human intelligence and physicality. Interestingly, the title of the book seems to have been taken from Christian theology, where the world, the flesh, and the devil are often described as the three enemies of the soul. Since they are the sources of temptation, they are viewed as being in opposition to the Holy Trinity. And yet the way he writes it is a trinity of its own. So to me, these are very, very 
cleverly and carefully crafted, trying to leverage off a thing like Christianity that is such a major mainstay in Western civilization and other parts all over the world and start to try to warp it. And to me, this is completely analogous as the barn wall from Animal Farm. To remind everybody, back in the book Animal Farm, which by the way, almost everyone in the Western world read in I think seventh grade, something like that. Why was that book? And Lord of the Flies. Why weren't there all these other books? But these were some of the mainstays. I can't think of the, the title of the book. Help me out. What's it? Brave New World, Lord of the Flies, Animal Farm. But in the book Animal Farm, there's such a key point made with the barn wall. Because the laws that would conduct the society of animals was written painted painted so it couldn't be edited on the barn wall but what happens is the rules get repainted and the animals can't quite remember what it used to be that is this tactic in my view and by the way uh, you're going to talk about transhumanism and you're going to name it world flesh and devil you're absolutely leveraging off christian theology i don't think there's any arguing that point in 1931 the pulp mag amazing stories publishes the jameson satellite a short story written by Neil R. Jones. The plot is about a man whose corpse is sent into orbit where it remains near absolute zero for millions of years until a race of cyborgs discovers it, defrosts its brain, and installs it in a robot's body. Here's our death-based system. Can't help itself. You got to reanimate that corpse. It's the opposite, in my view, of respecting life. And by the time this airs, I think we'll have done the Michael Hoffman book where he recognizes the death-based system in his particular way that he researches. And he runs it all the way back to Egypt and the mummy idea and all these things that are playing off. It even ties it to Vegas, right? There's that pyramid in Vegas. Well, what happened right next to that pyramid? Can't say it in hour one. Uh, the point here is I'm so glad you included amazing stories because you and I have covered the idea of where sci-fi started by the people who were in and around the power circles, maybe even royalty, uh, all connected in one way or another. And I do not recall if it's amazing stories per se, which branches out to eventually be touching things like Dune. But these are the seeds that are planted. And most people just think it was pulp trash for children. It had a very different purpose, which we have covered. And what's the gentleman's name, Jason, who did all the 9-11 work? The book I recently recommended to people, do you remember? Estelin. Estelin does an excellent job in his Tavistock-based book of outlining the core of sci-fi and amazing stories, plays a central role. Do you recall any of that, Jason? Yeah, well, Daniel Estelin absolutely did some fantastic work in a lot of these subjects that are kind of tied together as far as the way the elite kind of people want to steer things. Well, it's a bit like looking at the Laurel Canyon phenomenon where simply someone came along, McGowan, and said, wait a minute, how is it that all these people are all military children, all of them? And how is it that all of them are connected to intelligentsia? And then that starts to unfold. Uh, Estlin does a similar thing with, uh, as one small portion of the book, showing the core of sci-fi, how it gets no respect, how it establishes in, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Amazing Stories is actually the first pulp mag that gets good roots here. It's one or another one I can't remember the name of. Uh, but once you understand the connections, uh, you actually know something worth knowing. Inspired by the Jameson Satellite, the founder of Cryonics, Robert Ettinger, publishes his short story, The Penultimate Trump, in the pulp mag Startling Stories, 
in the year 1948. In this story, Ettinger proposes cryonics as a one-way medical time travel to the future. One way, that's a little scary, isn't it? Um, But look at what we're talking about here. So in Amazing Stories, they're already creating for these things that most of the world accepts exist, like satellites. Uh, I'm not familiar with this tale, so it is possible they're talking about a moon or something like that as a satellite, as they're sometimes called. But I'm reasonably sure, and I'll I'll take the risk, that we're talking about artificial satellites. Um, So think of this as the example. Some sci-fi writer, what was the name of the man who invented, who's the sci-fi guy who invented satellites, Jason? Arthur C. Clarke. So Arthur C. Clarke comes up with this thing that's far-fetched, no one believe, and look where we are now. People think there's satellites out in space doing amazing things, and yet there is not a shred of evidence that shows that is true. There is no video of these things. An ISS-supposed astronaut could put his high-def iPhone and show us these thousands of satellites, not a video in existence. And that's a shame because shortly faked video will be good enough that no one will ever be able to, to tell the difference. But it's ironic to me that we've got the Trump idea here in, what is it, 48, 1948, Jason? Yep. Crazy. In 1951, Julian Huxley, evolutionary biologist and eugenicist, as well as brother to Aldous Huxley, coins the term transhumanism at a lecture delivered in Washington. The lecture is titled Knowledge, Morality, and Destiny. Huxley describes his philosophy as the idea of humanity attempting to overcome its limitations and to arrive at fuller fruition. So before we get into this bizarre era of so-called science, uh, the previous generations, I have to accept and assume, were of a mind that a human being would strive to do the gains. In other words, if there's something humanity wants to do, we just got to work harder. Uh, we got to apply ourselves. What's the idea? If, if, if you believe in it, there's nothing you can't do was the old thing. Now, what we're doing here is throwing all that out the window saying, you know what, if we could build a clever enough dead machine. Um, but there's a whole story behind Huxley here, Jason. Go ahead and draw the lines. for. We better reiterate for people who are not familiar with the name Huxley. Go ahead. Well, Aldous Huxley, Julian's brother, is, of course, the person who wrote Brave New World. And there's your dystopian future that they kind of see coming right there. And I'll go further than that. This is a blueprint Um, for people who have not taken the time to read two staples in Western education. One I've mentioned, Animal Farm, which is a blueprint and a warning. Uh, The other one, which is totally a blueprint from my point of view, is Brave New World. Go back and read those things and now consider it in a post-2020 mindset. Now, go ahead and just finish off the circles and the connections of the brother Huxley. Royalty, circles of power. So, yeah, these guys all were part of the collegiate authority, if you will. Let me put it this way. We could say they were within the circles of maybe a good way to say it, Jason, would be lords and ladies, like a hair's breadth from royalty, uh, maybe even within that type of bloodline. And of course, all connected to places, many of them like Tavistock and other things. And for those who have been sleeping, um, Tavistock basically is a social engineering edifice that got very good at what it does, very good. And that was on the bank of, I hope I can remember, the Frankfurt School. Is that the earlier version? I think it is, Jason. Yeah. And there were multiple think tanks like this that existed before and some of which still exist today. People should go back and look at some of the episodes we've done or simply read a book like Daniel Estlon. It's got Tavistock in the title. 
you know, I don't agree with everything, but to be fair, to get something like that published, I think there's probably a line in the sand, but that's really not the main concern. The main concern is the line drawing and the connecting, which Michael Hoffman, that's why I think it's critical. No matter where I disagree, particularly around the ideas of death, the lines that are drawn and the methods that are outlined are so critically important to allow a modern mind to frame things up so they can think in a realistic, reasonable way. But there's the Huxley brothers um, tied to transhumanism. And of course, what have we been saying? It all goes back to sci-fi writers by hook or crook. And if anyone's interested, you can go on YouTube and find interviews with them and lectures and things like that. And you can hear things right out of their own mouths. It's not just conjecture. Well, you and I have covered too. Most people don't understand that the Macy's, you know, the store with the red star logo, uh, Macy's, they're at the center of the idea of eugenics and by proxy transhumanism. And that's, if I remember back to our episodes, that's early 20s, mid 20s, something like that, Jason. Yeah, you're referencing the Macy conferences that there are multiples of coining the early terms for cybernetics and some other concepts as well. So let's ask a simple question. Who owns your favorite mall store? Well, we don't really have malls too much, but back in the day we did. Um, who owns those places? Just think about it. I'm just saying, man, the web is wove. In 1954, Jerry Soule publishes his science fiction story, The Altered Ego, in which a man is able to make a digital duplicate of his mind and access it after his death. This marks the first appearance of the concept of mind uploading in a fictional story. Now, this is a concept that uh, especially someone like Ray Kurzweil really likes to push. So this is my big logical problem. A dead machine, no matter how cleverly built, has no life. That's a problem that's not going away in any of this. How could I put it in another way so that people could think about it? If these you know, scions of science, can they build a fish from scratch? Can they make an oak tree from scratch? Can you, well, maybe that's too hard. Just make a seed that will grow an oak tree later, this little seed. Can you do any of that? And we all know the answer, but that is the difference, isn't it? Um, that seed or that fish will operate for a lifetime without need of batteries. It will do something that is contributing or interacting with the environment in some way, and it fills a niche. And that's where all this goes south for me. So you're telling me a dead person comes and contacts this other dead thing, and somehow that's got a life equivalency? It's all just a bridge too far that completely tries to convince my mind to throw out the logic it possesses. I mean, what do you think? The transhumanist philosophy seems to be one of that there is no soul. How can you have a duplicate of a mind that is the same as the human without there being a soul behind it? That's literally just a computer program at that point. And a good point, because we have natural sciences and things called alchemy, wherein every plant or mineral or other things in the world can be provably alchemically, we would currently call it chemically, broken down to the body, the soul, and the spirit. And I don't know how many times I've said the following, which begins to prove that that was the correct view of the world, those philosophical principles. When you go into the liquor store to this day, what does it say on the bottom bottle that proves the alchemist got it right? It says spirits. In this case, most things that end up being booze were plants. So we can also tell you that almost all plants, it would be ethyl or methyl alcohol, which stands in for the described spirit. 
Now, there's another thing like methyl or ethyl alcohol that would literally be put in a vial and they could tell you this is the soul. And in almost cases, the body would end up being a salt of some kind. So, Jason, you're freaking spot on. Um, how can any of this be valid when we've already thrown out one third of the Trinity that from a scientific point of view or older rational science would be missing? It just it beggars the imagination. In 1959, physicist Richard P. Feynman presents the lecture, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom, suggesting the possibility of the manipulation of atoms in synthetic chemistry. This lecture would go on to inspire the field of nanotechnology that is such a massive field of study today. Now, I'm going to second guess that, you know, the, the statement they're making about the title, there's plenty of room at the bottom. Are they really talking about that or are they talking about the masses? I can't answer it, but it, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, I'm just saying, Jason. Yeah, they frequently like to look at us in that way because we're the uneducated, unwashed masses that, well, maintained humanity at 500 million. Well, the other thing is this is Richard P. Feynman, and I believe that is the name that was held up all the way through the world's biggest sitcom for many years called The Big Bang Theory, pushing their point of view. And in a way, uh, the character of Sheldon was trying to normalize something that would have looked at as not quite normal not too long ago, but the mental faculties had been boosted. So therefore, everything that came from that was just where we want to be. It's all quite crazy, but when you can connect a name that's been used in a television episode that goes out to hundreds of millions of minds, I think, I think you can tell what we're looking at here. This is the mainstream view being illustrated for acceptance at some point. In 1965, cryptographer and computer scientist Irving John Good publishes Speculations Concerning the First Machine, the first proposal for a possible future intelligence explosion in machine learning. We did an episode on AI, and if people want to go back, it is the first big, big research from our point using some of the first books written about AI. And when you know something of AI, to me, using the word learning is a misnomer. Because learning is the idea that a living thing did it. But what they're doing is they're, they're playing that twist and bend game. These are dead things. They are machines without a soul, as Jason has pointed up. They do not breathe. They are lifeless. Therefore, they are dead or without life. And now they're assigning ideas like intelligence and like learning to a thing that has no life. To me, these things don't jive. And that's the problem because... I don't know, since the mid-90s and all the jobs that I've done, I've heard the words machine learning to the point where it's commonplace to hear it now. When it was first said, it was like, wow, that's wait, what do you mean? That's weird, machine learning. And here we go again on the normalization. But underneath it all, what are we respecting here? Are we respecting the creation, um, life, or are we respecting and modifying something else? And by the way, if you're modifying life and you can't even make life, then what are you doing? I would ask. They call it machine learning, but really, I think we could call it data acquisition. That would be a more fair way of describing it, I would suggest, because machines don't really learn. They just acquire more data. And no matter how much data they acquire, the one thing they cannot do is have imagination and create something new. They can only use what they have data for. Perfect point. It's almost like you could equate the idea of machine learning with the ability to get an average, right? An average number of something. Um, 
it's almost like that. And I see exactly where you're going. And Rose would be happy to give out the episode that we did on AI because it is a huge episode and it shows where it all came from, what the big benchmarks for machine learning were. Like one example is, well, we got to beat checkers. Well, in short order, they do beat checkers. So the new benchmark becomes, oh, we got to beat a chess master. Everybody alive right now can pretty much remember back to, I think it was Kasparov. I forget the master's name, but he was beaten. But then the ultimate benchmark became the Chinese game Go, simply because at the outset, there are so many hundreds of thousands or however, it's a lot of moves from the outset that became the benchmark. Now, in the research we did, we found that they couldn't beat Go. And then finally, the people creating the AI said, maybe it's us. Maybe it's our human interaction with the AI that's preventing success. So what they claim they did is they said, okay, AI, go at it just because we've programmed you to do it on your own. And if you need to solve problems, go ahead and make more AI. What was it, Jason? I've forgotten. 72 hours, they beat the game Go. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, scary, creepy stuff. But we have a full episode that draws that picture all the way back to Silicon Valley and the onset of supposedly the world's most effective AI, which was claimed at that point to be China. In 1967, Philosopher Harry Overstreet makes the first mention of extropy in a 1967 volume of the journal Physis. Extropy is defined as the pseudoscientific principle that life will expand indefinitely and in an orderly progressive way throughout the entire universe by the means of human intelligence and technology. Today, extropism is a modern derivation of the transhumanist philosophy of extropianism. Extropists desire to prolong their lifespan to a near-immortal state and exist in a world where artificial intelligence and robotics have made work irrelevant. As in utilitarianism, the purpose of one's life should be to increase the overall happiness of all creatures on Earth through cooperation. (laughs) All right. Uh, How do you take this apart in short? Let's just ask the simple question. So, extropianism... Extropists desire to prolong their lifespan to a near immortal state. Let's ask the simple question that is based on probably every spiritual tradition I've studied, and I have studied many. When a human being dies, are they gone? Are they done? Or does it go on? Well, even science will tell you that you can't destroy energy. So from a scientific point of view, the energy that animates a human being has to go on. But I would point out that I would say the vast majority of spiritual traditions that I look at have the idea that you're reborn or you go on or you go to heaven. So if any of those very old spiritual traditions are correct or even in the ballpark, they're seeking a thing that already exists in nature. I mean, (laughs) am I right here? I mean, it's true. There's also another point we can add here. In the book 2001 A Space Odyssey, this is not covered in the movie, Arthur C. Clarke, who is pretty much one of these kind of people, his alien race that built the monoliths kind of have this concept woven into them, I think you could say. Oh, well, blow it out. I mean, what do you mean specifically that the the kind of almost machine-like idea? Well, Clarke describes in detail in the book, and I think this actually gets extrapolated much later on in in one of the later novels, because there's four books in the Space Odyssey series, but the alien race that created the monoliths, the monoliths are an artificially intelligent robotic system that was put out there by this race 
apparently far earlier before they spread out through the entire universe and no longer had the need for bodies. But it is described that these aliens, they kind of became like a super intelligence. They went through the uh, transhumanist phase where they were getting longer and longer lifespans by replacing their parts. And then they discarded those. The, the spaceships that they were in, they became the spaceships. And it just kept going on and on and on until they became, as I understand it, energy beings. Mm, good point. You know, when we did the 2001 episode, you, myself, and Wayne McCroy all went back and read 2001. You know, of all the episodes we've done recently, I got a number of nasty gram emails after that. Um, the people who even some very close longtime followers uh, had a lot of appreciation for the movie and other things. But I pointed out that artistic value was not one of the things that we examined there. Um, it was all about intent. And part of those emails that I got was because someone didn't like what we said about Kubrick. But I don't know. Would you say what I say? We can demonstrate it, can't we? I mean, I claim the research stands. What do you say? The research does stand. But if the movie jives for you, it's kind of like attacking music in a way like, oh, I don't know, let's say someone like Pink Floyd, who's a band that most people appreciate to one degree or another as far as classic rock is concerned. Sure, appreciate the music, but I'm pretty sure that David Gilmour, who's an amazing musician, is a Luciferian. I'm not entirely certain, but there are definite hints that he follows that kind of philosophy. Now, he may not have decades ago. But it's just an example to give. You can appreciate the art for what the art is in 2001 A Space Odyssey from a filmmaker standpoint, which I am a burgeoning filmmaker. It's fantastic, especially when you consider the time period. Well, that you're, you're making the key point of how does any of this work? Without the talent, then the entertainment as a tool doesn't work. And see, this is the whole point. And your point is valid. We weren't saying is this good artistic value here. I think it's pretty clear that it obviously is, or it never would have worked. What we're examining is the intent behind it. And to get back to your point, within the last two or three years, I saw an interview with Gilmore's latest wife, who I think is quite a bit younger than him. And she said on film, uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but people could probably look it up, that Gilmore doesn't, he's not a talkative man. He speaks through his music. That was one of the things she said. And then she launched into the Luciferianism. And the, the problem with that, the real problem, is that I don't think most people have the point of view of what they think that is. So people hear that and then they judge it by what they think it is. And if I had to guess, I've done this before and I am guessing, but I think their point of view comes closer to human beings were suffering. Lucifer came down at great risk, helped the human beings, and he paid a horrible, horrible price for having done that. I think that's their point of view. But I would ask, man, if you're going to say that on camera, why don't you give us the, the definition of what it is that you're accepting is important or what you believe in? But I think I come back to you, Jason. I saw the interview and I saw his wife say it. Also in 1967, the first person is cryogenically frozen at the Cryonics Society of California by the society's president, Robert Nelson, who was a television repairman. The operation was ultimately deemed unsuccessful and Nelson's clients were lost. 
So the thing that makes you an animated living being is gone. So from an alchemical point of view, you've lost minimally one of the Trinity, maybe more than that. Maybe you've lost spirit and soul. I don't know how an alchemist would say that. But the point is, do you see the problem with what they're doing here? They're trying to preserve a thing that can't be preserved. They're holding on to the one part, the body, which in alchemy would be the salt and acting like they've got the salt, the spirit and the soul. (laughs) I mean... It's just a logical problem that flies the way we think because very few people understand exactly what alchemy used to define and natural sciences. If most people understood those, that basic trinity, they would understand that they're holding on to probably one third of what matters to make a living thing living. This goes back to the same concept that as the decades had gone along, they discarded the spiritual concepts and just focused on the physical aspects. If you can preserve technically the brain, then the mind would follow. Is that true? I would suggest that even today in the 21st century, scientists don't actually know where the conscious mind resides or memory or any of those things, suggesting that there's more to this life. Which is interesting because some of the very old Eastern traditions do seek to try to define what the mind is, where the mind is, and all this, the consciousness, all of it. But you're making the point all over again. You know, if you're going to do a thing like this cryonically, it's a death-based system. You've held on to basically what alchemy would call the body. Think about it. In 1972, Fred and Linda Chamberlain established the Alcor Society for Solid State Hypothermia, later renamed to the Alcor Life Extension Foundation in Los Angeles, California. Fred Chamberlain had previously worked as a space program engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Alcor is still around today and states on their website, Preserving Life. Cryonics is the practice of preserving life by pausing the dying process using sub-freezing temperatures with the intent of restoring good health with medical technology in the future. And no one's buying this, so Hollywood's got to get in. How many movies are they? Oh, we found this guy who was frozen and now he's alive again. Um, This is complete poppycock. And on the face of it, the way that I begin to break things down is this guy, Mr. Chamberlain. He worked at a space as a space program engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Again, Jason and I have plenty of episodes to show you who and what found that. We even got this great religion out of that core of people in Scientology, which is completely at the center of the Jet Propulsion and NASA's ideas. This is all poppycock. And if I was to face a person like this, I would simply ask the question, please prove to me that we've ever been to space and don't show me fake video. Um, And I think the conversation would end right there. This concept even gets tied into the 1970s version of Buck Rogers. The original story, Buck Rogers was trapped in a mine and his life was preserved by mysterious gases that uh, kept him from aging and dying. And when he comes back out, of course, he's in the 25th century. But the 1970s version that I was quite fond of as a child, he is an astronaut who is frozen in his spaceship for 500 years and brought back to life. Perfect. And then we'll update it into probably the 80s or early 90s with such classics as Encino Man. If I'm not mistaken, that's a caveman that's been frozen that they thaw out and then party with. Uh, It's this constant need 
to insert into the minds an idea that is unacceptable, normalize it, and then keep it going until it becomes commonplace. And then pretty soon a place like whatever it is, Alcor is going to come along and say, guess what? Remember this thing you used to think was unreasonable and that you kind of got used to? Well, we just did it. (laughs) I like the moon landing. And for the last point for hour one, in 1972, the globalist organization, the Club of Rome, publishes the report, The Limits to Growth, positing dire projections of a growing global population and dwindling resources. After reviewing their computer simulations, the research team came to the following conclusions. One, given business as usual, i.e. no changes to historical growth trends, the limits to growth on Earth would become evident by 2072, leading to sudden and uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity. This includes the following. Global industrial output per capita reaches a peak around 2008, followed by a rapid decline. Oh, by the way, that didn't happen. Global food per capita reaches a peak around 2020, followed by a rapid decline. Oh, by the way, that didn't happen. (laughs) Global services per capita reaches a peak around 2020, followed by a rapid decline. Need I say it? Well, Jason, we should point out, not only did it not happen in 2020, they closed all industry and we survived with it being stopped, which totally proves the opposite of what they're saying. Absolutely. Point two, growth trends existing in 1972 could be altered so that sustainable ecological and economic stability could be achieved. And point three, the sooner the world's people start striving for the second outcome above, the better the chance of achieving it. Okay, uh, we've tackled so many things and you did a good job of pointing out that this is poppycock, these big claims they're making. But their projection of growing population and dwindling resources is laughable on the face of it for the simple reason. I'll use deer as the example. Well, we got to go out and shoot all these deer because there's going to be too many for them to get food. You know what? Nature's already got that covered. There will never be more population than food and deer living in nature anywhere because if one of them gets out of balance, then the other one will either climb crazy or fall right off to get back in balance. That's nature. So the idea that somehow we have to intervene is laughable. But the point I wanted to make is the episode, and again, you could send email and Rose could link you. Jason and I proved to my satisfaction that the birth rate has been falling for, you know, Jason, I was going to make a guess. Do you have, do you remember more closely how many decades uh, we're reasonably sure the population has been falling? I was going to say at least three or four decades. Yeah, it's been three or four decades, but it also depends upon which racial structure you're talking about, because certain countries and certain races are falling while others are maintaining themselves. And the Japanese is the one that always sticks in my mind. They're plummeting badly. Oh, it's it's crazy. But white people are in the same boat. And actually, if you go, if you still watch TV, you probably shouldn't. But there is a I think it's PBS. I don't know. It's Journeys in Japan. There's a bunch of Japan based kind of documentaries. Um, And though it's gotten to the point where they're trying to push globalist point of views, too, you do get to see a kind of documentary style of segments of the Japanese culture. And in almost every version, cycling in Japan, uh, journeys in Japan, there's one about food and the big skiji market there. What you will find is they go into these communities looking at fish or some other aspect, and there are no children. And you're regularly shown um, villages and stuff that have just fallen into disrepair because there were no children. And this is proof of the evidence that we laid down Part of it was based, where was part of that from? Do you remember some of the sources that we sourced? 
There are a couple of different places we pulled that from, but it seems to be accurate. It is accurate. And, and when I, after I had done all that research and I'd gone through and thought about my own lifetime as a firsthand example, when I was a child uh, coming east to Rhode Island, each family had minimally three kids. There were a couple that had five. There was one that had nine, which is a lot. There was only one family that had a single child. Now in this same area of Rhode Island, there are no children, none for a good three or four mile radius, or at least the immediate neighbors that I'm aware of, there are no children. Uh, oh, that's not true. One, one family seems to be moved in and renting that does have a couple of, of children. But other than that, it's completely evident that we've been in free fall. Not only that, the research that Jason and I did attached part of the reason to the feminist movement by the CIA agent Gloria Steinem that basically convinced women, if you want to be equal, you've got to act more like men. And one of the results of the burn your bra movement was that women that typically started a family back in the day at roughly 22 to 24 had then pushed the beginning of the family idea up into the, the low 30s. And that result alone guaranteed there was going to be a sharp reduction in how many children were born in the West. And before we begin to wrap up, Jason, if I think back and I need to go review that episode, anyone can ask us rules. We'll give you the episode number because we have to hide our titles. Everyone knows why. I think the exceptions to that were Catholic Latin races uh, were not in decline. Black people weren't either, were they? No, I don't think so. I don't think so either. But this had a lot to do with religion and how many children are typically had, but people can go back to the episode. Anyhow, there it is, hour one of uh, transhumanism. Jason, you want to get anything in or drop anything about hour two? Well, looking at the notes here, I wrote this a few weeks back and we hadn't had a chance to record it yet. This may end up being a two-parter because there's quite a lot we haven't gotten to yet. And there's so much to expand on between each point that uh, this may end up being a two-part episode as well. Well, I'll say a thing that I said a couple of years ago, and I just happened to be correct. I said that 2020 was going to be one hell of a year, and I pre-predicted the Olympics would close. Uh, we're coming up on 22, uh, the master builder number. It's going to be a year to remember. I'll put it on the record. That's where I'm coming from right now. What we're going to get into an hour two and possibly a whole nother episode to get through all of this are real visions of the future. And it's echoed in Hollywood. And I was just talking to Jason about what's Peter, Peter Dinklage. Is that name right, Jason? Yes. So the little person, I think that's the proper way to say it without pissing people off. Peter Dinklage, who's a major actor in Hollywood, put out a movie called I Think We're Alone Now, which is actually, it's the title of a song uh, from a female artist in the 80s. One of the first big breakout female artists. Was it Tiffany? I don't know. I think it might have been Tiffany. She did a cover of it. It was an earlier song from either the 60s or 70s, I believe. Ah, there you go. So it's it's obviously put that into the title. So it's almost like they're benchmarking when that came back around. Now I'll have to go look at the original author. Um, but that movie shows the stark reality that I think is almost like the wet dream of exactly what we're talking about. It's a miserable movie. It's not very cheerful. I watched about half of it and I'd had enough, uh, but something about it resonated with me as one of those movies for projection in the same way that one of the last Marvel movies, I don't remember, there were two big war, um, end game, whatever the names of those big Marvel movies, there's a portion where they're showing all the empty stadiums and all the empty streets, these pre echoes. That's where this transhumanism talk is kind of going uh, in a weird way where they're trying to convince you that life can't succeed on its own, but these dead machines we make, 
it can help everything. But anything else to add, Jason? Well, we're only in the early 70s. And as you can see, these concepts were really big even early on. And once we get into the computer age, they just start picking up more and more and more. And lots of people who might be what you would call the computer geek, computer nerd, engineer types, a lot of them get on board with this. And that's, it's quite, quite a movement today. Critical, critical point, Jason. By the time we're getting up to the end of the 90s, and I can prove it with an example here in a second, um, this transhumanist kind of computer rule the world thing is going to get out of control. When Google first started out, they had an agreement that they wouldn't be evil. That was immediately thrown out as you hit the year 2000 because the venture capitalists told them, turn a profit or we'll shut you down, or at least that's the story they're claiming. Very few people are aware that the president of Sun Microsystems, and I believe it was 1999, said, this is the end of privacy. There is no longer any privacy, but we got all these cool free things like emails. Nobody took it seriously, but he told you the gospel truth to your face and people couldn't even fathom that that was possible. And if you want to talk about privacy or human rights, that has to go under the bus at the first bus stop on the transhumanism transit line. Anyhow, that brings episode 337 to a close. I hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com, where we will have absolute free speech in the second hour and possibly the next uh, episode that will follow this if we can't get it all into the next hour. It's a hell of a thing, and it is pertinent conversation, transhumanism. There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
kind of beast of knowing.